0: We at the History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and the History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join the History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other History fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with the History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there in this episode, The History Guy tells three stories of dogs in history. First, he tells the story of Barry, a St. Bernard who rescued dozens of people in the Alps. Then he tells the story of Nick Carter, the world's best dog detective. Finally, he tells the stories of the Soviet space dogs, from Laika to Zib. Without further ado, let me introduce The History Guy.
1: The image of a St. Bernard today probably calls to mind the large friendly face of a truly massive long-haired breed of dog that has a historical reputation for saving lives. Yes, we all know St. Bernard's went out into the freezing snow carrying a barrel of life-saving medication to help people who had been stranded in avalanches. And that reputation is real. They really were life-saving dogs. But it might surprise you to find out that the dogs that saved those lives looked very little like the modern breed we call Saint Bernard's. And the reputation of Saint Bernard's owes a lot to a single animal who has been called the most famous Saint Bernard that ever lived. Despite being born 221 years ago, Barry the Saint Bernard is still considered by many to be the best of dogs, and he deserves to be remembered. The Saint Bernard breed originated in the western alps of Italy and Switzerland exactly what its distance ancestors were is something of a mystery. The breed is often recognized as a Molosser dog, a broad group of dog breeds said to trace their origins back to the ancient Molossus, a kind of dog kept by the Molossians, a tribe of ancient Greece. The Molossus dog was famed in antiquity for their impressive size and ferocity and were often mentioned by ancient writers. However there's little evidence that the St. Bernard actually descends from these dogs, possibly descended from local massive types or something else. The earliest records of the St. Bernard come from the Great St. Bernard Hospice, which sits near a high pass on the border of Italy and Switzerland. The hospice was founded by Bernard of Montan, born around 1020 and canonized as a saint in 1681. Bernard was Archdeacon of Aosta, which sat in the Aosta Valley on one end of the extremely ancient mountain pass, now known as the Great St. Bernard Pass. There's evidence that the pass was used as far back as the Bronze Age, over 3,000 years ago, and also contains remnants of a Roman road. The pass connects the Aosta Valley in Italy to the Valais canton of Switzerland. The summit of the pass is at 2,469 meters, or 8,100 feet, making it the third highest road pass in Switzerland. It passes between the two highest mountains in the Alps, Mont Blanc and Mont Rosa. The pass was often covered by many feet of snow, with drips approaching heights of 40 feet, and it was especially dangerous in the spring due to the risk of avalanches. But still, the pass was a popular route for French and German pilgrims on their way to Rome. Around 1049 or 1050, Bernard founded a canonry and hostel at the highest point of the pass. He eventually also founded another hostel at the lower Little St. Bernard Pass, 30 kilometers away on the modern Italian-French border. The hospice that he founded in the Great Pass was not the first to be built there. 200 years earlier, there was one built nearby that seems to have been destroyed by Saracen incursions around the year 940. He dedicated the hospice to Saint Nicholas, and it was placed under the authority of the Bishop of Sion, the Count of Valais, which is why today the pass is in Switzerland, and not Italy. The first certain reference to the dogs at the hospice appears in 1703, but the dogs are believed to have arrived somewhere between 1660 and 1670, probably given to the monks by local families. The 1703 source mentions that the cook built an exercise wheel for a dog that could spit a cooking spit. Two paintings from the 1690s also depict the dogs and describe them as cowherds dogs. In 1707, the archive says that the hospice lost a dog in an avalanche. Their original purpose was probably to serve as guard dogs for the monastery, but they proved themselves adept at a different job, saving the lives of people trapped in avalanches or the frigid cold of the high pass. The dogs that the hospice obtained in the 17th century differed markedly from the St. Bernard of today. They were smaller, although still quite large, had a different shaped head, shorter fur, and a longer tail compared to the modern breed. The dogs were reportedly not trained by the monks, but performed their work essentially by instinct, although later reports do describe training the young dogs. Supposedly older dogs were the primary teachers to the younger dogs on how to find people in the often treacherous weather and terrain of the pass. By 1750, the dogs were often accompanied by an alpine guide called a mérignier, whose job was to guide travelers through the passes. Monks themselves sometimes performed this role or assisted others, even physically carrying travelers to the convent. The guides' jobs were so important that the kingdom of Savoy dubbed them snow soldiers and made them exempt from serving in the country's military. One traveler recorded that often the guides are obliged to use a kind of violence towards travelers who, numbed by the cold and exhausted by fatigue, urge that they be allowed to rest or sleep for a while in the snow. We must shake them, tear them by force from this treacherous sleep, which would infallibly lead to them freezing to death. The dogs were likely brought along partially for protection from bandits and other 'er ne'er-do-wells. In 1787, the hospice reported that the dogs fought off a band of brigands, but they quickly proved themselves adept at finding lost travelers and guiding parties through the snow-covered paths with an excellent sense of direction. They were large enough to help clear the path for the travelers with their broad chests. After an avalanche, the monks learned to send the dogs out in teams of two or three. The dogs could track down buried travelers under feet of snow, and if found, either revive the traveler with their body heat and ample licking, or return to the monastery for assistance. One traveler described arriving at the hostel. In the evening we reached the monastery of St. Bernard on the top of the mountain. Enormous sums of money were expended to build these cloisters that were made of stonework, and we placed there to give sustenance to travelers on the Alps between Italy and Switzerland. Some of the large St. Bernard dogs are about, and when we sat down came over to give our hands a lick just as if they wanted to say hello, too. The travelers were given medical attention, warm food, and a place to sleep before trudging up the mountain in the morning. He also described the dogs. The large dogs searched in pairs. One has a wooden keg fastened under his chin. When they locate a victim, he is offered the wine to keep him alive, while the other dog runs back to the monastery to lead the monks who transport the lost back. Before the end of the 18th century, the rescue work of the dogs was already well known. In 1800, a dog was born at the monastery, who had gone on to make a famous name for himself. His name was Barry. At his adult size, Barry weighed around 40 to 45 kilograms, making him considerably smaller than the modern St. Bernard, which weighs between 65 and 85 kilograms. The same year, 40,000 soldiers traveled through the pass with Napoleon, and it was reported that not a single one died on the mountain thanks to the work of the hospice's dogs. One of the monks described them that year, They are kind to wayfarers, bark at them when far, friendly when close. We need them in particular to recognize, also through depth, traces of the old path which would be dangerous to abandon when covered in fresh snow. Our dogs do not fear the frost. Nature have them dressed well for the climate of their environment. Incredibly, the most successful career of any of the St. Bernard's dogs was only just beginning. He apparently showed great promise even as a puppy and a zeal for the work of rescuing stranded travelers like few other dogs did. By 1805, he was already famous throughout Europe. Perhaps his most famous rescue was of a child found senseless in an avalanche. The details about exactly who and exactly where the child was found differ in some tellings. In one, Barry was gone for hours in the storm searching and returned exhausted with the child clinging firmly to his back. While legendary and repeated in many tellings, historians believe that this tale is completely fabricated, likely first by 19th century priest, scholar, and author Peter Scheitlin. What is certainly true of Barry is that he saved many lives, and while no particular tale that has since survived is certain, he was prodigious in his ability to rescue the stranded, and saved at least 40 lives, as was reported around the time and shortly afterwards. A number that was inflated by other writers to reach as many as a hundred. Chaitlin wrote of the heroic dog that, The best of dogs, the best of animals, is Barry. You used to leave the convent with a basket around your neck, into the storm, in the most insidious snow. Each and every day, you examine the mountain, searching for unfortunates buried under avalanches. You dug them out and brought them back to life by yourself. And when you couldn't, you rushed back to the convent, signaling the monks for help. You resurrected people. On a memorial at a pet cemetery in a suburb of Paris, a monument shows Barry carrying a boy on his back, although the dog itself doesn't much resemble the actual Barry. A plaque below it reads in French, He saved the lives of 40 people. He was killed by the 41st. According to the story, word of a lost Swiss soldier reached the hospice, and Barry was dispatched to bring the man home. Barry picked up his scent and found the man, unconscious, buried in the snow. He licked the man to wake him, but when the soldier woke, he mistook the large dog for a wolf and stabbed him with his bayonet, killing him. The tragic story, you'll be glad to know, is untrue. On the contrary, the actual story of Barry's demise is much happier. After years of loyal work, the aging dog was allowed to retire and sent to Bern, Switzerland, in 1812. There he was cared for in his final years until he passed in 1814. In fact, it's a surprise that Barry would live to the age of 14. At least one report from the Times said that the great St. Bernards did not live to the normal age, with about 68 years being the maximum, and that was said to be the result of humidity in their quarters, which would cause rheumatism. The dogs from the hospice seem to have struggled to maintain a breeding population. Several times in the 19th century the population seems to have declined precipitously, only restored by crossbreeding with Newfoundland's and Great Danes or possibly by other similar dogs from throughout the nearby valleys and passes where they were also used. Barry was buried, but his skin was saved and a taxidermist preserved him in a pose meant to appear meek, to represent his years of service. At the time of his death his breed had no official name. They had many different names and were called alpine spaniels, alpine mastiffs or by locals in Switzerland, berry dogs. The hospice kept a dog named Barry in his honor ever afterwards. Unfortunately, there's another myth about St. Bernard's that is often repeated. They carried a barrel around their neck filled with alcohol, famously brandy, in the erroneous belief that brandy would warm the freezing people being rescued. There's no evidence that dogs ever actually carried anything like that, and the legend is usually traced to an 1820 painting by Edwin Landseer titled Alpine Mastus Reanimating a Distressed Traveler. The legend clung on so firmly that it's been repeated by almost everyone since, although the hospice itself and the historians at the museum in Bern contradict it. Ultimately, it was the breeding with dogs such as the Newfoundland which gave the dogs a longer coat and a larger bill, which ironically made it more difficult for the dogs to do their jobs, as ice would form in the long fur and drag the animals down. In 1855, one man began to try to breed back to the berry type, and by the 1860s St. Bernard was used primarily for the breed. In the 1880s, the Swiss Kennel Club had recognized the name as the St. Bernard, along with particular traits. Notably, the dogs had a dry mouth, and they were not known to drool. In 1923, Barry's body was refurbished, as it had become brittle, and his coat had dissolved into over 20 pieces. Barry's pose was also changed, and his head was changed significantly, enlarged in a compromise between the museum owner and the taxidermist to more closely resemble the breed as it appeared then. Dogs remained at the hospice until 2004, although their job as rescue dogs had declined. There was a recorded rescue in 1897, and they may have performed some assistance in the 20th century, although other breeds in the helicopter since made their work unnecessary. A tunnel was built bypassing the pass in 1964, which means that much less traffic now passes by the hospice itself. In 2004, the dogs were sold to several foundations due to the cost of maintaining the animals, with the promise that they will still come up to the hospice during the summer. While their time as rescue animals has ended, the St. Bernard breed is still very popular today, although they don't look much like Barry or the rest of the rescue dogs of the Great St. Bernard Hospice. Over their years there, the hundreds of dogs are thought to have saved at least 2,000 lives, guarding the pass at a time when as many as 20,000 people a year braved the omnipresent snow. And many of those animals also died in those avalanches, selflessly trying to rescue those who had been stranded. Barry's taxidermied remains remain at the Natural History Museum in Bern, where they've been since his death, to remind people of his heroic nature. As an enduring symbol of that nature, the Tokyo Fire Brigade today wears a patch with an image of a St. Bernard. Peter Scheitin wrote of Barry, Whoever should encounter your embalmed remains should take off his hat, should purchase a picture and put it in a frame and show it to his children and say, Go! And do as well as this good samaritan did and what good advice how much better would the world be if all we humans sought to do as much good as the best of dogs
0: next up the history guide tells the story of nick carter the world's best dog detective
1: First appearing in 1886, Nick Carter, master detective, who had such superhuman strength that he could lift a horse with ease while a heavy man is seated in the saddle, is considered a precursor to modern superhero stories. Raised from a child to be a master detective, the character has gone through many variations, from a detective with preternatural strength and memory, to a classic film noir hard-boiled detective, to a super spy. The character was a staple of dime-and-nickel pulp novels, radio shows, television programs, and films. Thrilling Detective Website estimated that Nick Carter had appeared in over 4,000 novels, comic strips, films, and radio shows by 1949, and speculated that there were probably more Nick Carter adventures than those of any other fictional detective. But as exciting as the fictional character Little remembered Today was, his abilities seemed to pale next to his namesake a real detective who solved more than 650 crimes in a brief seven year career between 1901 and 1908. The real Nick Carter skills were so impressive that he was called in on the most difficult cases of the day. If he arrived at a crime scene, it would draw huge crowds. When Nick Carter was described in the newspaper, it was almost always associated with the terms the famous or the celebrated Nick Carter. What's more? Nick Carter, the real detective Nick Carter had undeniably and documented superhuman abilities abilities so amazing that they wildly exceeded what any normal human detective could possibly do Nick Carter was quite possibly the most famous bloodhound in history Bloodhounds are large scent hounds originally bred for hunting deer or wild boar As a scent hound, they have shown a particular ability at tracking human scent, and have been used for that purpose at least since the Middle Ages. Believed to be descended from hounds once kept at the Abbey of St. Hubert in Belgium, French speakers know the breed as the Chien de Saint-Hubert. They have had, at times, a fearsome reputation, with, for example, a terrifying scene in the theatrical version of Uncle Tom's Cabin portraying a terrified Eliza being pursued by vicious hounds. That scene damaged the reputation of the breed, but in fact, bloodhounds do not appear in Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel at all, and she describes the slave chasing dogs as bulldogs. In fact, the breed was likely not imported into the United States until after the Civil War, and breeds used for hunting slaves likely had little bloodhound heritage. The breed is, in fact, very friendly, and when used in hunting, are used to catch a trail, but not used in the kill. Popular Science Magazine described the breed's temperament in their July 1935 issue. Tracking is a game to them, and they haven't the slightest ill will towards the ones they follow. As one aficionado of the breed explains, if you are caught by a bloodhound, your greatest risk is that it may lick you to death. Volney Gilbert Mulliken was born in Kentucky in 1869. He became a breeder of bloodhounds, and his hounds were used in a number of celebrated cases. Of his hounds, Nick Carter, named after the Pulp Fiction detective, was the most famous and most celebrated. A large dog with an exceptional earage of 23 inches tip to tip, Nick Carter's first case was in 1901, when the dog was just one year old. The dog was put on the scent of a man who had criminally assaulted a young schoolteacher as she walked home. The dog followed the man's trail several miles, and then directly up a stair and to the man, sleeping in his bed. The man was then identified by the victim. Among his odd cases, Nick Carter was credited with following one of the shortest trails in Bloodhound crime detection history. When James R. York was murdered in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, in 1905, police were baffled. Mr. York did not seem to have any enemies and they could not divine a motive. When Mulliken and Nick Carter were called to the scene, Nick Carter led them 106 feet to Mr. York's brother, who confessed to the murder and was sentenced to life in prison. Demonstrating the gentleness and utility of the breed, Nick Carter was brought in on a case where a toddler had been missing 27 hours. Mulliken and Nick Carter were called and arrived on the scene in the middle of the night. Nick immediately caught a scent and took off, followed by Mulliken and the girl's father. The dog went so fast that the men stumbled and dropped their lantern. By the time they caught up with him, he was with the little girl, who had become entangled in some brambles. Her arm was around Nick, who was affectionately licking her face. Nick Carter was most famous, however, for finding scents that were seemingly too old to find. In one case, he tracked down a pair who had murdered a woman in her home, 56 hours after the crime. Following the scent 26 miles, the pair confessed to the crime. In his most celebrated case, he followed a scent to find an arsonist that was a stunning 106 hours old. Nick Carter had a significant impact on crime in Kentucky, where he mostly operated, helping to tamp down long-standing blood feuds and showing so much skill at finding illegal stills that reportedly bootleggers put a price on his head. Nick Carter's cases became central to state decisions regarding the admissibility of bloodhound evidence in criminal trials. In 1907, Mulliken took a position with the Lexington, Kentucky Police Department. And Nick Carter and another of his dogs were officially hired as officers. Nick Carter's legs gave out in 1908, and he died shortly after retirement. His death made newspapers nationwide. V.G. Mulligan continued breeding bloodhounds and solving crimes. He eventually left the Lexington Police Department and formed his own detective agency. He took risks himself. He was nearly killed when he was shot while trailing a suspect, and was shot at several more times. He said that he also put his life at risk defending people his dogs found from lynch mobs, believing they deserved a trial. He died in 1931 at the age of 61. He is credited in helping to build the popularity of a breed that still serves law enforcement, helping to find fugitives, missing persons, and people trapped after disasters.
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So it's possible, if there was ever a single dog that has, like, truly embodied the idea of man's best friend, that uh, Barry is the one to choose. (laughs) Yeah, he's, and you know, that's, I mean, dogs have different personalities, but Barry
1: seems to have been uh, a dog that was just naturally predilected to saving people and just had a natural, you know, love of humanity and uh, willing to self sacrifice to to help people. So, I mean, every dog has different skills, but I mean, at what those dogs were doing up there at the hostel, uh, Barry was just really, really good at it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what they say, Barry saved 40 lives. So,
0: yeah. And, but I mean, gosh, the dogs, they think the dogs in that whole, what, that whole century, saved mm-hmm. something several thousand lives yeah of people yeah, who were really traveling people
1: that were crossing that path a, it tells you don't try to walk over the mountain pass in switzerland sounds like a bad idea all around it? Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, uh, i think you're putting yourself in some danger there and it's a disappointment to find out that they're not bringing you a little keg of brandy but uh, uh yes they uh that's how they got their reputation it's interesting though to find out uh, that they that, that what we see as a Saint. Bernard is not what they looked at like at the time. It's kind of funny because no. some of the breeds are very old, but uh, we've only started standardizing the breeds through dog shows and things like that so that they don't even look the same anymore. So it is kind of funny that over time they've modified the taxidermy on Barry. Uh, to, to match more what we think the dog looks like now and that possibly modern St. Bernard's would not be well suited to, uh, what yeah. the St. Bernard work was supposed to be. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, uh, those dogs, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. Just, you know, these, these monks just had these dogs and they would just run out there and pull people out of the snow or, or at least
0: find out where they are. So you could go pull them out of the snow. It's extraordinary. One of, one of the truly incredible things is that apparently they weren't, they were never specifically, well, they weren't originally specifically trained to do that. This, this yeah, was, yeah, just was, just, dogs, was just working with the
1: natural tendency of
0: the dog, yeah. yeah. And they, I, it doesn't sound like, you know, they brought the dogs up there because they were like, ah, yes, these are rescue dogs or anything like that. It just kind of turned out that way. They it just had some dogs. There. Well, I mean, because they were using mountain dog breeds, so they, were, they yeah,
1: probably had true. been bred that direction or something like that. But, I mean, you're right. They didn't, they didn't plan to train a bunch of rescue dogs. They just had dogs. They became rescue dogs, uh, though apparently later on they did train some of them. It's kind of interesting that they kept them there, what, until 2004. It was until the 21st century that they were still keeping dogs there. But it would be a disappointment to take the now not very beaten path up to the top of the pass there, where the hostel, as I understand it, is still there, yeah. and not have Saint Bernards there. I guess, but if you go in the yeah. summer, I guess they're still there. They come back in the summers. That would
0: yeah. That's know? I think that's that's what we what we what we learned there is that there there's still uh, there's still bread somewhere kind of nearby, but that the the hostel itself doesn't can't afford to
1: can't afford to feed the dogs since they're not pulling them out of the snow anymore. So also don't get lost in the snow and the in the French Alps
0: anymore course, must be a lot easier to get through the those passes than it was uh, yeah, in yeah. the I 17th, and 18th centuries. Time, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's. I mean, I do think it's interesting. You know that they they looked so different. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not something, I, I don't know when I think when we think backward, you tend to, and what choice do you have? You, you know, you imagine what you see today. And so when you read a, a, a old story that talks about a St. Bernard, I mean, the, what you picture is, is today's St. Bernard. But when you look at the, yeah, yeah. when you, <laughs> you look at all these images of it now, I mean, it was a very different dog. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it doesn't doesn't look the same at all. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things that's surprising is you'd think the long hair was part of it, and
0: actually the yeah. hair was shorter, and that the long hair would be some disadvantage
1: uh, in the snow now.
0: Yeah, that was an interesting tale. I thought it was kind of uh, his, his when they taxidermied him, the idea that he was like supposed to be in a meek pose, uh, I thought it was honestly kind of a bad choice. <laughs> yeah, it's I, kind of a, well, I mean, you know, taxiderming the uh, the hero dog, I mean, that's,
1: there's some, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, is that really, you know... Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, Jer- Jeremy Bentham was taxidermied so that he could keep attending faculty meetings. So maybe, maybe it makes <laughs> sense. But I mean, in a way, it seems like eh, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I think yeah, it's I
0: ultimately it's kind of sad that they they tried to change it to look more like the modern dog. It um, is. So because people were surprised when they saw it and yeah. didn't assume therefore that it was a yeah. I mean,
1: they they don't look like what is what was the movie Beethoven? That was the one with the Saint Bernard's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't look like that at all. That's that's not what the breed actually looks like.
0: Yeah, and and it's kind kind of in the time you know before we really had an idea of what uh, uh, breeds were. Certainly in the in the modern sense, we didn't have that idea. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean I'm sure
1: we're, we're breeding for characteristics. I mean yeah. there
0: there are some very
1: old dog breeds, but uh, yeah. as I said since we've since we've standardized, I mean not whether are there more breeds, but I mean you, uh, dog shows are made in order to standardize breeds so that yeah. you can recognize the dog from that breed. Uh, and before dog shows, then you know they they didn't look quite nearly as standard
0: because no. they weren't they weren't breeding for that. And we weren't uh, – there was a lot less uh, care about making sure that you stayed purebred. And I know that even purebreds these days, they, they because staying purebred can cause genetic problems and does cause genetic problems, that they do do some crossbreeding to try to keep the, the genetics they keep them, uh, healthy. Yeah, so
1: but, I mean, it's just it's done differently now. But I yeah. don't think that the monks really cared that these were any particular breed.
0: They no. just you know wanted dogs to do what they were doing. Well, and they, they – one of the reasons why they look different now is because they specifically – uh, continued breeding with other animals that were nearby. It sounds like several times that the population there got uh, close to, you know, go, uh, going yeah, extinct. Yeah, they didn't have enough elderly, dogs to and, do it, and so they had to yeah. bring in or, you know, crossbreed yeah. with other dogs. Yeah, It's just a difficult thing to do. But I, I think it's really cool to me to hear these stories, these old stories about dogs, because it's clear yeah. that dogs have been a part of human history always. I, I mean, is, essentially yeah. for... Yeah, we've
1: got, we've got a really interesting episode about cats. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that is so relatively recent comparatively. I mean, we don't really know much about domestication of dogs because it occurred long in prehistory, way back yeah. in prehistory, uh, and was probably had to do with the fact that we were both persistent hunters. And so there was just a consistency between the two. So uh, uh, it, it makes for a different you know question. But I mean, it, it, wherever you go back, you know, dogs were important. Yeah. They were important parts of life. And uh, and that makes you wonder, you know, how you know how as the human race goes forward, how it's going to keep interacting with the animals. But it's interesting that we keep around a lot of breeds like Saint Bernards that at one point were working breeds, and now you know their that function is gone, and yet you know, we still keep the breed around.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. And it's it, it is sometimes online you'll see things that are like a, what this breed looked like a hundred years ago, and it is really quite incredible. It's not how how different they might look. We've we've definitely. I mean, now we've got very you know particular standards and stuff for what the dogs look like. And that that yeah, that was
1: breeds and we see. Yeah. Well,
0: I don't know you remember. My dad, uh, your grandpa had a three pound dog. So. Oh gosh, that was a well. That that dog they, <laughs> half the size of a cat. Yeah. When I when I tell people about that dog, because it was it was a miniature Chihuahua, and then it was the runt of the litter. Uh, so yeah, so was, much yeah. so that they they didn't think it was going to live. <laughs> and someone's like, oh well, you know, I'll I'll keep it. But yeah, that
1: was that was a funny. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, and the idea that I mean, starting with one species, because we think dogs all all domesticated from yeah. the same species uh that we've got you know uh, uh uh great danes like we did like we did the the one on on, on the great dane in south africa on, yeah. on just nuisance and you got that little lady when she barked you try to figure out what that little noise was because it just sounded like something was squeaking and it was the dog on the floor yeah and uh yeah they're you know they're i mean it's extraordinary what we've bred to but i mean yeah. to 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 breed that variety uh, means that you have to have done some, I mean, it's, it's like we said with the, with the St. Bernard's, it's gotta be difficult to breed that without running into all sorts of breeding issues. Yeah. And and that's why there are a lot of breeds that have a lot of health issues that come from, you know, what we were choosing to breed
0: to. Yeah. And that's, I, you know, sometimes those were trade-offs and it's interesting sometimes how the, you know, why those stuck, stuck around and it's different depending on what the animal is. But, I uh, it's, I, it is amazing to think that these dogs that were essentially, uh, Farm dogs, cow, herd, cow herders, <laughs> yeah. these alpine dogs that they just, and they just brought them up and they started uh, originally. Yeah, of rescuing people yeah. out of the blue, like, oh, hey, that's a good idea. Since originally they were probably brought up there to be uh, uh, guard dogs. And which is, I mean, dogs have always been used as guard dogs of various ways. They talked about the, in the uh, 18th century, they the dogs fighting off brigands, uh, which they would have been, mm-hmm. the, these still would have been pretty sizable dogs, but like Barry himself was significantly smaller
1: than, smaller than the,
0: yeah, the same yeah. Today, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story that that's just what they, uh, you know, we did that episode and we did it on the podcast not that long ago, the mercy dog one. And mm-hmm. uh, these, these dogs were acting pretty similar to the mercy dogs without much training which they kind of found they kind of found that uh, multiple times they had dogs that were never trained as mercy dogs that seemed to do uh, similar, similar jobs. It's, it seems to yeah. be just something that dogs, I
1: mean, I mean, first of all, there's a reason, I mean, the reason probably the humans domesticated dogs is that there's a, there's, there's some sympathy in how we kind of see the world and how yeah. we hunted and et cetera. Uh, and so that's not surprising that, uh, that there's that, you know, we're going to find dogs that are predelicted to doing some things that we find to be useful because they find the same things useful. Uh, and it's also not surprising that over whatever 50,000 more year, years, of, yeah. of breeding that you know that's i mean even if you didn't breed the dog to do what it's doing i mean there's there's reasons why those traits would be you know important would be yeah. valuable to you one of the things that terrifies me is this is this the idea then is that if we have the same amount of time breeding cats that we will get the same variety of cats because that's i'm quite sure if i had a cat the size of of say you know a, you know a, a dane then it would kill me and eat me <laughs> i have no doubt in my mind that uh, so, if cats get as big as dogs, even as big as middle-sized dogs, that will be the end of us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They, uh, you know, and there are people doing that. There's, there's a lot of effort these days to, you know, breed particular uh breeds of cats to create breeds yeah. I, mean, I mean obviously there are wild cat
1: breeds you know you can take yeah. a cougar into your house or uh you know a leopard into all your right. house if you really wanted to eat your children but i mean to to <laughs> to, to i mean theoretically domestic dogs were bred to all those sizes yeah. from you know from the eurasian wolf so so theoretically all the cats that we have today and of course people are breeding you know huge cats of the the Maine coons and stuff like that uh and you breed them for personality and all sorts of things but i mean it just terrifies me to think about besides yeah. i mean the, uh, uh, our, our business manager has an english mastiff uh and he's the sweetest thing in the world he's a sweetheart but if he had my cat's personality that would be <laughs> that
0: you would know be troublesome i i uh, my wife when she was uh, when she was a little kid so like a toddler uh, their cat was was young and was was mousing her and it actually caused some damage and so they had to get another cat to or they, essentially the choice was get another cat to try to work out his his energy or you know get rid of the cat and yeah I think if if, uh, if a cat was big enough that I was you know relatively <laughs> closer to the the size of a toddler compared to it, um, you know, compared to a regular house cat, that that might be, a, that they I'm might I'm not hunt sure they me. would be
1: as friendly as Barry. I'm not sure their yeah. personality worked out. Because I'm not sure that they're the same, same I mean, the reason that we domesticate cats is different than the reason that yeah. we domesticated dogs. And that's why some, you know, dogs have personalities that are, that are naturally, you know, assist humans. Uh, that's not, we didn't, we bought cats to, you know, hunt stuff that was trying to eat our, our food. Yeah. Uh, and they don't, they're, they're not pack hunters. So I'm, I'm quite sure that the reason I haven't been eaten in my house with three cats is because I'm too large to eat. Uh, <laughs> and, and if you make a larger cat, then that's that equation might <laughs> that, that change might, uh,
0: that might shift yeah ah. i i do i i very much think that my cats have never um i don't think either one of them because i've had them both since they were very little uh, have ever you know killed a bird or anything and like just eaten it raw but i still think they would know how to I uh, if if I mean, you know I've,
1: I've heard that they you know that they might need to be trained to know how to do the, the killing blow or whatever. Yeah. And so if you have a house oh, cat and so, they've yeah. never been trained in that, then sometimes they'll kinda of torture stuff because they don't seem to know how to how to finish it off. But certainly my cats are still hunters. Uh, and but you know, I think there's there's you know, there's still you know, the the, the natural instincts of a dog are still even in domesticated dogs, even in the, in the three pound yeah. miniature chihuahua. La- lady was her name, by the way. Uh, uh, even in dog. that even that little dog, there was still dog to her. And it's kinda of funny because she... She would still defend her territory which is you know she she would easily be eaten by almost any other dog breed i mean she could be intimidated by a by a wiener dog right so. she
0: would have fit reasonably inside inside my shoe if
1: <laughs> yeah she was she was crazy small uh, uh, but she got along with the cat, I guess. So I, I guess that's true. The cat never ate the dog. So maybe that's proof that the cat wouldn't if it was bigger. <laughs> maybe it wouldn't eat us maybe if it given the Maybe it wouldn't because then, <laughs> the, the cat's never ate lady. So that was an interesting place for that conversation to go, wasn't it? So anyway, <laughs> Barry was the best of dogs. Uh, that instinct was amazing. And it, that's, it's, it's a great video. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of interesting to hear that the great legend about how Barry yeah. died is actually not true. And then Barry had a really wonderful life
0: uh, because uh, Barry deserved yeah. a wonderful life. Yeah. It is, this is an interesting, one of the things the story kind of is a good example of is how these legends build up. Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, Barry was a was clearly an incredible dog, but he went from saving 40, do- 40 people to saving 100. And then they've got all these various stories of how he saved people. And, I mean, even to this dramatic, uh, you know, heroic death that he was trying to save somebody and yeah, stabs they- him and he still, you know, still tries to... Still saves it the is. guy's life. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's it's and yet you know it's none of it's none of it's true. And we we don't actually know if any particular story, um, from Barry was a true story. But it's it's interesting to see how that builds or up. How and that, how, that, how many of that might have applied to other
1: yeah. dogs there. Yeah, but uh, but I mean Barry was certainly a real dog. Barry certainly you know did you know heroic things. Uh, and um, unlike some of the stories that we talk about, I mean, in fact, you know, some in this episode, I mean, it, it, it was choosing that. I mean, the dog knew what was yeah. going on it wasn't like they strapped strapped him in a rock and yeah. shot him into space you know so uh, uh so uh, uh it's a great story about that connection between uh, man and dogs uh and where that connection was so strong that that dog would you know could literally you know sniff out men that were dying and just yeah. go find them
0: uh and bring them to help. and it's actually it's a little similar to to the shorter episode that we just listened to uh, uh about nick carter yeah. and it's because he too was was finding people, and he wasn't saving them necessarily. But it was really pretty similar I mean, skill, I, I guess, in a way. Because I mean, you found you like found like lost that's kids true. and stuff like that. But I mean,
1: that He's I mean, this, that's just dog. Those bloodhounds, they just enjoy. Yeah hunting they enjoy following the scent uh but i mean just the, the, the stories there are just incredible you know, oh, what, Yeah, what 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 originally put us onto that story was that we we would heard this this legend that the bootleggers have put a, a price on the dog's head uh which <laughs> yeah. is which is hard to confirm we actually couldn't find anything to confirm that though we could find some newspaper stories that said that there, there was a rumor that so yeah. so but uh uh, yeah i mean that's uh, it wasn't just that this dog you know loved doing what it was doing but the dog was exceptionally good at it you know yeah. finding someone after 100 hours or finding someone after you know miles and miles and yeah, they're incredible animals. What they can do, so it's kind of funny because you have this Nick Carter, who was this this. Uh, it was kind of funny because he was he was you know the best known really kind of superhero star of his time. Yeah. Now we don't see him in, in public media at all. I mean, there's yeah. there's plenty of plenty of movies out there where it's the Nick Carter movie, but uh, the, but uh, but the dog actually did have this enormous yeah. detective ability that was just extraordinary from the start. And so there's just a lot of great stories in there about what that dog did, and those are all those are all in the newspapers everywhere. I mean. If if uh, if a case involved Nick Carter, uh, then then it was front page news. Everybody in the country knew wow. who that dog was, and the famous Nick Carter was coming. Though it did get a bit confusing too, because uh, one of the things I found out in the research on that one is that uh, a lot of people started naming their bloodhounds Nick Carter after that dog. So sometimes you had to you had to be careful to see if it was the same Nick yeah. Carter that they're talking about in the newspaper. Yeah, I thought it's funny it's something Carter about that, that breed too that he had a he had a he had a, an impressive earage. <laughs> I'm like two feet across if you held his ears out or something
0: like that. That's that's how you measure bloodhounds. It's it is it's such an interesting. Uh, but I, mean, I love the intro to this episode where first of all you have to talk about uh, the comic book character who mm-hmm. uh, you. It's it's funny that you have to you have to go back to this this pop culture reference that was so universal at the time uh, that you know we would have considered someone they would have considered someone not knowing who Nick Carter was like in mean, yeah, the same way we would have been like oh you, you don't know who Tony Stark is you've never yeah, heard yeah, of Iron yeah. Man You're right. you know
1: this is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, yeah, the biggest movie, one of the Avengers, you know, yeah. he was he was as well known as Captain America. He was he was pre Batman, yeah. Right? And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of novels written. It's kind of interesting that he's Crazy. disappeared. But I mean, that's why the dog was named Nick Carter. And the thing is, the dog was a better Nick Carter than yeah. any dude ever would have been.
0: Right? It's yeah, and it's it's just amazing that you know you have to describe this pop culture reference to even understand why his name. Was uh, was honestly so? I mean, it's it's a piece of comedy there that they named this yeah, dog. Yeah, yeah. There's really an so irony to it, and it. especially since yeah. the dog
1: was such a such a fantastic detective.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's you know you mentioned that the bloodhounds are not apparently very aggressive animals. It's interesting because I I can still think of multiple movies that takes them as you know. Bar, they're, you're running away from the the barking bloodhounds yeah the there. bang bloodhounds yeah yeah, yeah. but actually if the bloodhound catches you it won't hurt you but yeah. i mean presumably whoever's chasing the
1: bloodhound i mean <laughs> you we don't wanna, if you're the escaped prisoner presumably the dogs aren't alone right there's uh, there's yeah <laughs> there's
0: somebody leading the, there's or following behind the, dogs. the
1: dog there that does want to put you back in jail but uh, yeah that they, you know if, they, if it's it's kind of funny because they are such um, uh, uh, single-minded hunters when they're when yeah. they're chasing a scent, uh, that the assumption would be that you know when they get to something they're going and it's not at all it's just a game to them and they get there yeah. and like
0: woohoo I found you yay give me a treat you know, <laughs> yeah yeah and
1: that's it. and the you know the the, the guy saying yeah they might lick you to death so they really do have a wonderful personality uh, and that's that's part of what what makes it here the uh, these the the photographs were in newspapers that were more than hundred years old and so they're they're pretty fuzzy if you see the YouTube version. Yeah. And that was the best, really, we could do, even trying to improve those photographs. So it's hard to say if that breed, you know, has changed as much as uh, as we talked about with Barry changing. Yeah. Of course, that's more recent. I mean, he's, he's what, 100 years past Barry. Yeah. But uh, uh, the, the the uh, I don't, so I don't know how much the breed has changed. But, I mean, there's a reason that we were particularly breeding bloodhounds. And it's interesting that he was used to find, uh, uh, you know, lost children as much as he was yeah. used to find criminals, as much as he was used to find illegal stills, which
0: apparently he was quite good at. <laughs> Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? You know, in, in honor of what uh, the, the episode that we'll be talking about after this, I actually
1: watched one about the International Space Station. It's called Zero Gravity. It's about life on the space station. Uh, and you you know you' seen it I mean, I it was really cool to me because I'm old enough to have seen you know when they were floating around in Apollo or in Skylab, and they're like, this is how we take a shower so uh, uh, and so this is it was kind of fun. it's a it's a it's a European who who went up to the space station, talks about his training, talks about how he got there, talks about his time when he's up there, and shows just you know the you know, the the how do you eat where you sleep, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think it's really cool. It's, I mean, how do we, how do we actually uh, uh, live up there? Uh, you know, we see bits and pieces of it up there, but this one was a really great uh, way to really get a view of, of what life is on the space station. It had me thinking, though, about, you know, politics, because, you know, the, uh, uh, the Russians decided they're not going to support the ISS after 24. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, uh, how, you know, things are going to change because of geopolitics now, because it looked like we were looking to some sort of great, you know, change in cooperation. Uh, in space. That's why we built the International Space Station. And now we're seeing that uh, the politics were bigger than the space station. And that's, that's kind of scary. So it really was if you're interested in space, if you're interested in how we're exploring space, and if you want to get some, you know, really just see the perspective of kind of day to day life. uh, It was a it's 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 a great uh, uh, documentary. And and, one of the things you love about Magellan, they have
0: something on all sorts of things. It's a great space documentary. What have you been watching on Magellan TV? So, I, kind of in the same vein, I was watching. It's called A World Without NASA. There's there's actually a couple episodes on it, but what it's what it's really about is talking about various things that NASA has done and the way that those technologies have kind of spread out into the modern world. And so we've we've talked about that a little bit. Um, in various pieces but what it talks about very and the the next episode looks like it'll talk about even more interesting things uh one of the things it talked about was how uh, nasa has affected food safety and how essentially the way that nasa was was learning how to keep food safe so when it went up into space uh that how we've we've turned that into how we keep our food safe at the grocery stores uh really interesting ways in which kind of nasa has affected modern life and the i guess the the Conceit is that you know, but we're, where would we be without NASA? But I think it's it's a lot of people we don't see how the way things that NASA have invented have worked into our everyday lives, and so I think it was a really really interesting way to see that. Um, I didn't know they they only mentioned it briefly, but apparently they took Salmonella into space, and what they learned is that uh, it's actually more virulent in space than it is on hmm. Earth. You need less of it essentially to actually get sick, and that that's gosh, it's a really interesting uh, little little tidbit. So it's, it's some really interesting stuff. And, you know, as always on Magellan, it's really high quality. You're able to learn all kinds of stuff, and there's always more to watch.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always been one of the arguments for explorations. Whenever you do that, then you end up uh, getting a lot of uh, ancillary yeah. technologies that are useful. But it's also, I mean, regardless of what you think about, you know, whether that made sense or not. I mean, it's, it, you know, is that a reason to go to space? I don't know. But it does. it is interesting to know because there's so many, you know, this, these extraordinary, uh, I mean, uh, origins of things that we're using yeah. every day. And you had no idea that you know, that was invented for going to the moon. So,
0: yeah, that sounds great. I think I'll, I'll check that one out. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Finally, The History Guy tells the story of the Soviet space dogs, and stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with The History Guy. In the
1: 1950s and 60s, the United States and the Soviet Union were locked in a race to see who could be the first to send a man into space. The Cold War was in full swing, and both countries wanted to dominate the final frontier. Both countries worked on rocket designs and support systems that would allow them to send a cosmonaut or astronaut into Earth's orbit and return them safely home. And both countries used animals to test the safety of their designs. Sadly, many of those history-making animals never made it home. The courage and sacrifice of the U.S. and Soviet space animals is history that deserves to be remembered. One of the United States' first animals in space was a one-pound squirrel monkey named Old Reliable because of how quickly he picked up on training at the Navy's Aviation Medical School in Pensacola, Florida. The U.S. chose squirrel monkeys because of how sensitive they are to their environment, making their biological responses to the stresses of being in space easy to monitor. Before the Jupiter AM-13, bearing old Reliable's capsule, blasted off at Cape Canaveral on Friday, December 13, 1958, at 3.38 in the morning, the scientists renamed the monkey Gordo, which was an easier name to pronounce over radio communications. He was equipped with a plastic leather-lined helmet strapped to a custom-built couch with medical monitoring equipment. Gordo survived nine minutes in space, but was lost when his capsule splash landed in the ocean, and the beacon to signal the waiting rescue ship did not go off. Despite the loss, the mission was considered a success. Scientists believed, despite not being able to find him, that Gordo survived the landing, and that a human could have done the same. Numerous monkeys and apes of several species were flown by the U.S. in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. About two-thirds of all the monkeys launched in the 1940s and 50s died on the missions, or soon after landing. While the U.S. was primarily working with monkeys in their space program, the USSR had a different animal of choice, dogs. The Soviet space program utilized all female dogs because they were believed to be easier to handle. They used animals picked up as strays from Moscow streets because they thought that those animals could bear hunger and extreme temperatures more easily than house pets. The Soviets were launching suborbital flights with dogs inside them as early as 1951. Using R-1 rockets, pups with names like Desik, Segan, Malishka, and Zib successfully ventured into the upper atmosphere and most returned to tell the tale. Zib was particularly interesting. Usually, Soviet space dogs received extensive conditioning and training before being launched. But Zib was picked up off the streets because a dog named Bolik, who had been trained, managed to escape and run away shortly before her flight. Zib is actually an acronym for the Soviet words for replacement for missing Bolik. Despite receiving virtually no training, Zib completed her mission and returned safely home another Soviet dog made history by becoming the first animal to orbit the Earth, a 13-pound stray named Laika. Originally called Kudryovka, or a Little Curly, the international press gave her the name Laika, or Barker, after her introduction by Russian radio to the adoring public, in which she barked into the microphone. After the successful launch of the first satellite in space, Sputnik, on October 4, 1957, Soviet scientists were tasked with creating a satellite to carry a dog into space. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev requested that the next history-making satellite blast off on the anniversary of the Russian Revolution, which was November 7th. With this tight deadline of less than a month's preparation, scientists were pressed for time on designing Sputnik 2. Chosen partly because her white fur with dark spots reproduced well in black and white photos, Laika was extensively trained for her flight, along with a second dog named Albina, which translates roughly to Whitey, and another dog named Muka or Little Fly. Muka was used to test the systems on the rocket, including life support. Albina was Laika's backup, in case anything went wrong. Though Albina may have been a better candidate for the flight than Laika, because she'd already flown in a high-altitude rocket twice before. But Albina had a litter of puppies, and scientists were reluctant to send her on the mission. They already knew the dog they sent into space would not be coming home. The equipment to safely return a living creature from orbit had not been invented yet. The capsule would only be equipped with one day's worth of food because scientists weren't certain the dog would be able to eat at all. There were also concerns about weight. The first Sputnik, launched the month before, weighed about 40 pounds. Sputnik 2 would weigh an astonishing 250 pounds. Laika was outfitted with extensive biological monitoring instruments through surgeries and a special waste-eliminating suit created just for female dogs that took training for the animal to get accustomed to. She was kept in smaller and smaller boxes to prepare her for the restrictive space capsule and trained to sit calmly for a long time. Laika was also run through centrifugal simulations to prepare her body for the stresses of spaceflight. It must have been difficult for Russian scientists to send the famously even-tempered Laika off to her death. Adelia Kodoskaya, a scientist on the mission, said, Before Laika's mission, I was crying. We all knew in advance that she would die. We were asking her to forgive us. Critics at the time protested the use of Laika. The National Canine Defense League in the United Kingdom asked all dog owners to participate in a minute of silence for Laika. Some animal lovers protested in front of Russian embassies. Before lunch, one of her handlers took Laika to his home, and his children spent a few hours playing with the dog before the flight. One of the people who prepared Laika for the flight later said that as she was strapped into the capsule, someone kissed Laika's nose and wished the dog bon voyage before shutting the door. Laika blasted off on November 3rd, 1957, in an R-7 rocket. After surviving the unbelievable gravitational pull of takeoff and making it to orbit, the jubilant Soviet scientist sent the message, Alive! Victory! to authorities for distribution through the press. At the time, the official story circulated suggested Laika was alive for a few days in orbit, and had died a painless pre-planned death. It was not until 2002 that scientists shared with the world that she probably died from the heat and stress only a few hours after the flight began. Laika's capsule orbited the Earth over 2,500 times and burned up when it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere the following April. Skywatchers in the United States reported UFOs and bright lights. What they were seeing was Laika's return to Earth. Oleg Gazenko, one of the scientists to work with Laika, expressed dog lovers' opinions about her loss. He later said, The more time passes, the more I am sorry about it. We did not learn enough from the mission to justify the death of the dog. Laika has been memorialized in popular culture, children's books, films, and stamps. In 2005, NASA named a soil target on Mars, part of the Mars Exploration Rover mission, Laika, because of her contribution and sacrifice for space travel and humanity. It would be almost three years since the flight of Laika and Sputnik 2 before the Soviet Union's Institute of Aviation and Space Medicine would again send dogs into space. The dogs on the next flight were named Belka and Strelka, and they would not be going alone. Soviet scientists also sent rats, mice, a rabbit, fruit flies, and plants with them. The primary aim of the mission was to gather intelligence regarding the physiological effects of space flight, information that would be used to determine whether or not short-term exposure to weightlessness seriously impacted basic bodily functions. Belka, which translates to squirrel, and Strelka, a little arrow, were small, like Leica but unlike their unfortunate colleague, their capsule was equipped with parachutes. Cameras were installed in the capsule to record their every move. When Sputnik V reached orbit, neither of the dogs were moving. However, after the fourth time around the Earth, Belka vomited, and both dogs began to move and bark. After they circled the Earth 17 times, the successful pair returned to Earth and became almost instant celebrities. The taxidermied pair may be viewed at the Museum of Cosmonautics in Moscow. A year after the flight of Belka and Strelka, Yuri Gagarin became the first human to orbit the Earth. Shortly before he did, a dog was sent into orbit along with a dummy shaped like a cosmonaut. Gagarin was said to have joked that he was unsure if he was the first man in space or the last dog. The Soviet dogs continued to make history when Ugolyak, Kol, and Vetorok light breeze, orbited the Earth for 22 days in 1966. Their length of time in orbit was not beaten by humans until the Soyuz 11 mission in 1971, and is still a record for canines in space. And while animals in space offered valuable information that was necessary in order to facilitate manned spaceflight, they also made a unique connection at a critical time back here on Earth. Though the US and Russia were heavily engaged in the Cold War, President John F. Kennedy and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev knew each other well, and often exchanged gifts. One of the most interesting of the gifts was a small white dog named Pushinka. Listed as non-breed on her registration, Pushinka had an extraordinary parentage. Her mother, Strelka, was one of the first dogs the Soviets sent into space. The flights of the Soviet dogs had captured the U.S. and the world's imagination, and in a story related to the BBC by her daughter Carolyn, when First Lady Jackie Kennedy ran out of things to say, while seated next to Khrushchev at a state dinner in Vienna, she asked about Strelka's poppies, to which the dog had given birth after her famous flight. A few months later, Khrushchev sent Pushinka, the daughter of Strelka, to the White House. According to Carolyn, my father had no idea where the dog came from and couldn't believe my mother had done that. By some reports, Pushinka had to be x-rayed and frisked for Soviet listening devices before being allowed into the White House. Pushinka became a favorite of the Kennedys' children, and also one of the Kennedys' dogs, going on to have a litter of puppies with the Kennedys' Welsh Terrier named Charlie. The puppies were named Butterfly, White Tips, Blackie, and Streaker, and Kennedy reportedly referred to them as Popnicks. The puppies were given to four families in the United States after nearly 5,000 letters arrived at the White House requesting the dogs. About a year after the arrival of Pushinka, the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the defining events of the Cold War, took place. Historian Martin Sandler argued in his 2013 book, The Letters of John F. Kennedy, that Pushinka and the relationship between Kennedy and Khrushchev helped prevent nuclear war. Animal testing of any kind has always been controversial, and I suppose it's no surprise that a period of extreme competition between nuclear powers that our animal friends would be drawn into the fray. These creatures couldn't defend themselves. They they didn't volunteer for missions that had to be frankly confusing, painful, terrifying, and for many of them, fatal. But as they always have, man's best friend came with us even on our most daring missions. And it is no surprise that they also helped to bring us together in our darkest hour. I can't help but think that when humankind finally goes out to distant planets, that we won't bring our canine companions with us, and we will settle the stars together.
0: So this this episode's kind of much further in the future than the two episodes we listened to earlier, yeah. but in, in my mind kind of the, the connecting piece here is is about how closely dogs are tied into human culture and human advancement. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned at the end of it, I we have taken dogs everywhere we've ever gone, and I think we always will.
1: Yeah. I mean, Barry went out and risk, risk his life to save the life of humans. And so you could say that, I mean, that, cause we're using dogs as, as biological. I mean, so it's preferred dogs. We preferred monkeys, but I mean, we're using these animals and we're putting them at risk because they're bio- biological, uh, uh, analogies to us. Uh, but it's interesting here because we're straight up saying, and I, I guess to an extent you you say that with the snow dogs and stuff too, but we're straight up saying is that we recognize their life as being less valuable. Yeah, uh, and so it's, I mean, it says a lot about, you know, man's best friend, that they continue to be man's best friend. Uh, yeah. But on the other Despite hand, I mean, this is uh, like, a, you know, gave her life uh, for the advancement of, of science and the advancement of, of moving humanity into space. And that's that's heroism. I mean, it would be a hero if it was an astronaut. So why not if it's an animal? Uh, and, and so it really does. It talks about a point in history. It talks about the way that we treat uh, animals and these other species and how we regard yeah. them. It is a message of the heroism. I just can't imagine that how terrifying that would have been for those animals. I mean,
0: they, they had no idea what was coming up. No. And, I, I mean, you can criticize humans too to some extent to say that we're willing to do that um yeah. we, we learned I mean, some important we were,
1: stuff you're you're a said i mean he famously said <laughs> i don't know if i was the first person or the last dog
0: yeah yeah that's it uh, the... was at the end of... <laughs> okay <laughs> the two dogs came back alive now you and i yeah, uh... would we'll see if you will right and it, to say, there is something very human about it though when you talk about how hard it was clearly for those scientists those soviet scientists to send like up there knowing that she was going to die
1: yeah, and, yeah, that, and
0: that they, they so fully yeah.
1: recognized that they so uh, and uh, the the cost of it, and so I mean, there's something touching there. Um, I mean that they were asking for forgiveness from the animal, and that they knew that they were making a sacrifice. And, and uh, I, mean, I mean, there's uh, it really is uh, in many ways just like the other two. It's about that how close we are yeah. between people and dogs, uh, and and how close the emotional bond is uh, uh, that we that we go on an endeavor that is as extraordinary as trying to go out of space, that we do that together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, you know, they, they changed our understanding of the universe. They allowed us to do what we've done in terms of going off into space. And then, you know, as we find out towards the end of the episode, they ended up, you know, uh, being the bond uh, that maybe kept yeah. us from uh, uh, over,
0: you know, overreacting during one of the most dangerous moments in the Cold War. And it's, it's such an interesting story, the way that those, that dogs were so connected to all of that. You know, I think we will. I mean, you mentioned we'll bring dogs into space with us. It makes me think of you know the Star Trek. Uh, what in in Enterprise he has a he has a beagle, and uh, in Next Generation, of course, uh, Data has a cat, which oh, true, which yeah. I've always thought thought was. Uh, but it's you know those. It's interesting to think that no matter how many things change around us, uh, the dogs have stayed stayed as a yeah. you know as as a partner, and I mean yes, as a, as a tool too. Um, I I thought it was interesting, you know, the scientist you said, ultimately, is like, we didn't uh, learn enough from, like, to send her up there. And I I think that, yeah. yeah, I think today... Uh, we, we try to ask, I hope we try to ask that question as if we're, if we're using animals for things like that, that we, we ask ourselves, is this something we you can know, only it's, learn? You know, it's
1: a, it's, a, it's still a very difficult question on and, yeah. and how animals are used in all sorts of research and cosmetics, research, you know, all this stuff we talk about it. So, I mean, it's hard to see, uh, you know, Lotka uh, uh, Latka not being different, little barker, yeah. Uh, yeah. but then a dog is being tested to see if, you know, shampoo hurts your eyes. Uh, but in the end, like they said, you know, what did we really learn from sending her up there that, yeah. that we really had to have the dog up there and especially to send the dog up knowing that it could come back. So much of that was because they were just in a hurry to launch. Yeah. Uh, and so they, you know, they probably could have, you know, put thought into bringing the dog back down to you know, earth and they didn't. Yeah. Uh but i can't you know i can't imagine being locked up there and, and it's it's interesting that that, that you know that they you know they made it sound like she was up there for a long time and that she you know she kind of would have quietly died and and that instead the dog died of stress almost instantly is that that, that secret was kept clear until the 21st century that's just kind of hard to imagine so i mean there's a lot of there's shocking stuff in this episode it really does make you think was this really worth it should we really yeah. have done this uh, but on the other hand it certainly it, it makes you appreciate uh, you know, again, uh, what these animals can do and what they've been willing to do for us. And so, I, you know, I think of them as being heroic uh, even if they, they had no idea. I mean, it was, you know, I, I guess Barry had some idea when Barry was going out into the yeah. snow. Uh, but, uh, you know, Laka didn't know what they were, what no, they were doing, why they were teaching, you know, Laka to stand still. I mean, I'm sure is not like, oh, you know, they're going to put me in a rocket and shoot me into space and let me die up there. That's just not yeah. what are in the dog's head, yeah.
0: And, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, we don't ask them to volunteer. That's And you can't. Really, yeah, yeah uh, and it was I mean,
1: that was uh, the whole thing though. It's interesting, you know, history is simply interesting. You know, yeah. they pulled, they used uh, just strays
0: out of Moscow because yeah. you are a straight dog. you managed not to freeze to death. that, in Russia, that, uh, that kind of difference tough, between you know? yeah, between the American vision where we're like we're using monkeys and because and we're looking for ways that you know they're kind of similar to us, and the the Soviets are like, well, we're going to send dogs because if a dog can live up there, we can, and a stray is the best choice. Yeah, because um, they're gonna. They're-
1: Obviously, if you're alive, if you if you live through a Moscow winter without a
0: house, then you're hard to yeah, kill. You're, you're yeah. hard to kill. So we'll we'll send you up there, and that that should prove. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories, honestly, and it is it is an entertaining story, especially because it you know it ends happily. The the dog comes back, but it's the they they have that dog Bolik that they have like trains to go up into space, and then they lose it, and they just pick up a stray. And essentially, name it uh, replacement, <laughs> replacement uh-huh. dog, and shove it in a, in a rocket. Yeah, and, and it send does it.
1: just as well as a the dog they've been spending all that time training. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the, that poor dog. I, I think of the it fact that it makes you wonder if you could do the same as an astronaut. I don't know, I, but I mean, uh, rocket uh, me the, up You up know, there, that yeah. dog finally thinking, yeah, this is my forever home. I've been pulled off the street. I don't have to lose the stray." Two days later, <laughs> space. Yeah. Shoot
0: it into space. Oh, that poor dog had no idea what was going to happen to it. Um, but it,
1: it, but, it is. but it says a lot about. I mean, when uh, when Jackie Kennedy sitting next to Nikita yeah. Khrushchev, the thing that they found in common they could talk about was dogs.
0: Dogs, and that's yeah. uh, that was uh, uh, Belka and Strelka, which I which are adorable little names for meaning squirrel and little arrow. I think that's and just adorable. Arrow, yeah. But I mean, the fact that another one named... they came
1: back and they bred, but then uh, you know yeah. they stuffed them both. They're both in a museum, and I'm still yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just not sure what I how I feel about that.
0: I I have a you know, I love my cats a lot. I don't think I'd stuff them after they were dead. I feel like that. I feel like I. I would mean, what that if your ruined.
1: cat was a hero? If your cat was a great. If your cat was the one that pulled you know ten people from a fire. I, I Does that make you feel better or worse about stuffing the dog and putting it in a, in a or stuffing the cat? Like, put it? I have it's no a idea. Fair question, I, right? It uh, is really it really does it. it, it uh, I I'm not sure where where to put that. I mean, I you know it certainly meant as an homage. I mean, they were certainly heroic little animals. Uh, and how, you know, I, you have to wonder if they're, you know, if they're in their old age talking about, you know, remember that time when we went I mean, does the dog really <laughs> yeah. know what happened to it? It's like, Is remember the that dog weird really thing? We it's say that so, something, you know, this, I had this really crazy day and I don't know, was it, you know. Suddenly, uh, suddenly they were pulling me out of the,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, did box they, did, they put me in. I
1: mean, did they realize they were shot into space and dropped down on a parachute? I mean, does, does the dog remember that afterwards and have some idea what happened or was that just like, you know, they went on a
0: car ride, you know. Yeah, they were like, that was a really weird car ride, man. <laughs> that was, yeah. <laughs> um i i honestly don't i honestly don't know but it's it's interesting about because it seems like you know in in barry's day at least like there really wasn't another way to preserve his image i mean you could draw him i guess but like in the in the time of photographs it sure feels like we could have made a fake uh we didn't have to yes, you're right. yeah, we, right. we could could've, we could have made so a fake
1: pictures of him yeah you know, i don't know that a dog <laughs> cares what you do with their their mortal well that's also fair uh, and I, honestly I don't know, don't know. But, i mean obviously in nature they wouldn't uh they wouldn't have been preserved in any way, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I have no idea what to do, but honestly, if I, and I, I don't, I'm not planning trips to Russia, but I mean, I'd love to see the space museum and I would probably look at this stuffed. T-
0: well, you know, I would probably go look at them too. And then you can, you can at least say, oh, look, that's, that's what it looked like. Yeah, Although uh, you, I mean, do you know, wonder... they, didn't,
1: they didn't stuff Yuri Gagarin. Right? No, <laughs> right? he got to be
0: buried. Uh, well, but, but I, I mean, guess
1: they did, they did do linen. So I have no idea, you know, where the... <laughs> we're back to jeremy bentham sitting at the what end of their, the hall there i mean every yeah, once in a while their, but uh,
0: what their choices are exactly on that yeah I, yeah I I mean,
1: why, why it was okay to stuff the dogs and not the not the you know <laughs> the first astronaut i don't
0: know maybe that's the proof that he was the first human instead of the last dog so uh, that's they, the, they the difference stuff between him. the two clearly <laughs> yeah. um and of course yeah the the fact that you know belka is able to or Straka, which one, whichever one was the puppies. Uh, that end up coming to to Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. It's a,
1: what a great story that is. Popnicks. Pup That's yeah. such a great story. Yeah. Well, and, and, it this, is, and they had that. You know, they came. You know, they're like, you know, is this dog a spy? You know, they had a, they had an X ray <laughs> and make sure it, it changes collar. And I it was, you know, you could totally imagine in the Cold War that they might have tried to bug the White House with yeah, the dog. with with
0: yeah. a dog. Well, there's there's that uh, it came. It was no longer classified, but some, sometime during the the Cold War, they had tried to turn a cat into a you know to like <laughs> yeah, release the, it at a and, well and apparently they released the cat and it was like immediately hit by a car hit by a car so, or but it, it had some they had kind of listening it. device in it and they figured oh well you know if it's a stray cat
1: yeah will. i mean it wouldn't i wouldn't it all be the craziest thing out of the cold war if that dog was built to try to listen to it and you can see why the president's kind of stuck in a in an odd position there because you don't really <laughs> want to keep the Russian dog. Well, I mean, it's a dog. So I, and I, I, you know, I, I, there are, I think descendants of the puppies
0: are still out there. Oh, uh, I was kind of interested in that. If there, yeah. it's, it's a little harder to, I, you would think someone might keep track of that kind of stuff, you know, what a uh,
1: wonderful cold war story though, that they had these yeah.
0: four puppies
1: that uh, thousands of families wrote in and, you know, four of them got to keep the puppies. Uh, and that, and when the, you know, when the Cuban missile crisis is going on, that's the thing that they, that he and Khrushchev can talk about. Yeah. Uh, that kind of helps to diffuse the situation. So, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, they were it's it's hard to think about how much dogs were part of the Cold yeah. War, but they were. Uh, and this this episode talks about that. And so I, it's a lot. I mean, part of it's touching, uh, part of it's funny, yeah. uh, part of it's just extremely painful. And I think yeah. that that is, you know, that's what history is. And I mean, this kind of covers that whole gamut of history. And we have maybe on, weirdly, maybe more sympathy for it because it's occurring to our four legged friends.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.